to whatever God wants to do in this place. Oh, God. Holy Ghost, fill us afresh. God, we don't cry out until we're in seasons of dryness. That the pain and the dryness actually becomes a blessing because it humbles us to cry out to you again. So God, we just ask to fall afresh on this place. (laughs) Oh God, you're so good. (laughs) You are so good, God. You're better than we even thought could imagine. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You can be seated this morning. Excited to be here with you. Um, God is in this place. And I've learned a long time ago is that if God don't show up, nothing else really matters, right? We could have all got a little more sleep this morning, amen? <laughs> Especially when football season starts up, right guys? We could have watched a few more games. But if God shows up, suddenly everything else pales in comparison and everything else begins to make sense. Amen. We're going to be looking at Luke 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 28. And uh, this is a text that I've found. I just, I just keep revisiting it. Uh, all the time. It's, uh, I'll visit it, I'll forget about it, then I'll come back to it, and I always find something new in this text, and it's, it's just amazing uh, that God just uses this to speak to me. And so I just want to encourage some people in this room. Um, discouragement, depression, failure, those are all things that can plague us. And I believe that Satan's Number one duty on this earth is, is what he wants to do is keep the body of Christ from knowing who they are and to keep them discouraged. To, so that they might have the, the feeling or the, or the, the thoughts to, to, yes, we're saved, but God really doesn't love us and he really doesn't want us to do anything for him. And basically, if Satan can get the church to just exist and not step into their destiny and their purpose because of past failures, then Satan feels like he has won. So what do we do when we face a trial? And then what happens when we fail in the face of a trial? How do we respond to that? How many of you know life doesn't go the way we think it ought to go? Amen. Life has a way of turning and and moving and and doing things. And and we all have our well-laid plans, right? We all have our way that it ought to go. We even have our way with God that we insist to Him how it should go. You ever been there? You ever insisted to God how something ought to go? Right? God becomes your errand boy and you're speaking things, but what you're really doing is trying to avoid a trial. Our whole lives are really a series 
of evading adversity. But sometimes it's that adversity that when we come into contact with it, that God wants us to learn a lesson that we couldn't learn otherwise and pull us through that adversity and to confront that thing so that we might then step into our destiny. So sometimes the greatest failures that you have experienced are the greatest victories that lead you into greater levels of faith. See, but trials is what I've learned in my life is that there's some trials that are just unavoidable. There's some things in life that I just can't dance around. And if we fail in the face of a trial, what happens then? How does God look at us then? And what if that, that failure that, that, that we've experienced, what if that's the exact thing that must happen in order for God to really use us in the way that He wants to use us? Because see, what I've learned about myself is I have a self-image that I project out to others. But what I've got to remember is I'm not created in my self-image. I'm created within the Trinitarian dynamic of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I've been made in their image. See, sometimes God's got to crush your image of who you think you ought to be so that He can show you that you're made in His image and you can be who you need to be. And sometimes it's failures in the crushing of our dreams that bring us into that reality. So if you failed this morning, I want to set you up here and tell you that you haven't failed. You're just being set up to go into your destiny. Something on you needed to come off. And God wants to use that. So the proverbial old question, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? That's not the question. It's the wrong question. You know what the question is? How in the world is God going to use this evil for my good? <laughs> See, that's the more miraculous thing that God wants to do. That's the better question. It's the better question. In our text today, in Luke 22, starting in verse 28, Peter's listening to Jesus, and he's, Jesus is laying things out for Peter. And he's telling Peter the things that Peter doesn't want to hear about himself. And Jesus is sharing these things. And so many times Christ will, will try to tell us something about ourselves. And have you ever disagreed with Jesus about something that you're going through, right? And this is what happens here. And what's cool about God is He's always there in the dialogue, right? It's like when we disagree with God, He's not like, okay, I'm out of here, you don't get it is that Jesus keeps firing back with questions that reveal more clearly that we actually don't have the answer. And that's what Jesus does here with Peter in the text. He's disagreeing with Jesus. He, he doesn't want to take his advice or trust what he's telling him for his own good. But in this trial, Peter finds Christ is more than enough. And it takes a failure for him to realize that Christ is more than enough. And Jesus is always right when it comes to our lives. 
He's always in the right. Luke chapter 22, verse 28. We'll just dive right in. Just as Jesus talking, he says, you are those, talking to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Verse 29, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Wow. So, so notice this. Jesus is saying, you've stayed with me in my trials. And then he begins to assign to them a kingdom. So Jesus is saying, you've stuck with me through my stuff and my trials. And as the Father's given me a kingdom, I'm giving you a kingdom as well. See, Jesus is sharing this glory and the trial. And this is something that we struggle as Western Christians, right? Because we're about efficiency. We're about time management. We're about the easiest way possible. We're about getting it done in the least amount of time in the most easiest way. But, but, but Paul has a different uh, relationship theology when it comes to Christ. That's why he says in, in Philippians, he says, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection... But the third part of that verse is, and the fellowship of his sufferings. That if he's not sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, then something's missing from his relationship with Christ. That he needs to have a share in the trials of Christ being misunderstood, being marginalized, being persecuted by the religious and the empire of his day. He needs to have a share in that because if he doesn't have a share in the fellowships, chances are he doesn't have fellowship with Christ and he's definitely not walking in the power of the resurrection. That is what Christ is trying to make clear here now verse 30 check this out he says that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel what a promise jesus is telling these men like guess what you're going to sit at my table not only are you going to sit at my table, you're going to judge on 12 thrones and, and we're going to have a share in this thing. See, Jesus is telling them that there's a greater glory coming than what you're, parent, than what you're presently experiencing. And this is what God has always got to remind the church, right? Because when adversity and trial comes, what's the first thing we do? How can I sidestep this? How can I go around it and keep the facade of pretending I'm somebody who I'm really not? That person's impressive. That person uh, gets respect. I don't want to have to go through this process of vulnerability to find out I'm something I'm not. But when we circumvent that process, what ends up happening is, is we never encounter God the way He intends us to encounter Him. And this is what Peter says. So Jesus is saying, this glory that I'm telling you is greater than the trial that's coming. I need you to focus on that, Peter. See, if we don't know the glory that is to come, when the trial comes, we'll give up every time. We'll give up. If your tomorrow, if you can't picture that being better today, then you will never look forward. You'll stop dreaming. You'll stop looking to God. You'll, stop, you'll, you'll just park it right where you're at, and you'll stay there the rest of your life. See, God wants you to know that the promise of tomorrow is greater than today. And so he tells them, now watch this, verse 31. Jesus addresses Simon by his name, his birth name that he was given. See, Christ gave Peter the name Peter. But Simon is Peter's name. So verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold. 
Satan has demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. Get this. But I have prayed. Come on now. Come on now. That I got to shout at a Presbyterian church. Come on now. But I have prayed. Christ is praying for you. Many times we think of prayer is this, I'm prostrate before God, I'm laying out and I'm crying out to God. And that is a necessary part of prayer. There's time to put our heart out there and for supplications. But you know, we rarely talk about that Christ is at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for us. So Christ is praying for you. This should stagger us. That there's a talk around the throne. And that Satan is coming there and saying, I want to sift them like wheat. And God says, okay. And Christ says, but I'm praying. Sometimes my prayers don't get answered. Amen? Because sometimes we're praying from a limited knowledge. How many of you know if Christ prays, it always gets answered? So Christ's prayer over you today is going to get answered. Because He has the Father's ear in perfect fellowship. It's amazing. It's amazing. This is Christ's concern for us. So what does Christ pray? Look, look on here at the next verse. He says, I'm praying for you that your faith may not fail. Now when we read that, we gloss over that a little bit too fast. And we read that like this. I have prayed that Peter will not fail. We want Christ to pray, and I, I pray that Matt will not fail. And we insert our names there, but that isn't how Jesus prayed. Jesus is praying that their faith wouldn't fail. Not that they wouldn't. So in other words, through this trial, there's going to be a sifting process. And if you've ever seen the process of sifting wheat, that sifting process is all about getting the chaff off so that we're left with the grain of what is profitable. Okay? So Satan has asked to sift you. But what Jesus is saying is all his sifting is going to do is serve to knock the chaff off and leave the grain. And so Jesus is praying, Peter, I'm praying that your faith don't fail. I don't care if you fail, Peter. I need you to fail. There's something in you that needs to come off that you need to find out about yourself. But as you're going through this process, there's going to be a grain of wheat be on the other side. And when you are converted or when you are changed, Peter, then you're going to strengthen my brethren. See, all Satan can do is knock the chaff off of you. Look to your neighbor and just slap him on the shoulder and say, I'm going to knock the chaff off of you this morning. We just need to knock the chaff. So Satan's trial, his adversity, what he's doing is actually going to work against him. That this is the great message of the cross. 
that the politically, uh, uh, the political organizations of the Roman Empire say we got to kill the rightful owner of the earth and that the religious institutions say he's getting too much popularity and the wrong kind of people are coming into the buildings now. We've got to kill them. And these two things collide in the most religious place in, in the world, first century Jerusalem, and they collide to kill Jesus. And the Bible tells us that if Satan would have known that if they killed the Lord of glory, it would have brought victory, he wouldn't have done it. See, Satan's going to sift and he's going to try, but what happens is, is God allows the evil and then turns the evil back on Satan. So if you'll let God turn your failure back on Satan, you actually become a greater trophy of grace and it goes in the devil's face all the more because the devil says, look at them, they're a failure. But then God says, yeah, but look, they're a grain of wheat and they're crazy about me and they'll do anything for me and they love me with all their heart. I'm going to feel the Holy Ghost whether you do or not. So, <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. See, Peter don't realize the chaff's there. And that's how a lot of us think. We think we've arrived. Christianity's the, the only religion where the patient becomes the doctor after the first week they've been saved. Come on now. I, I got saved and I thought I knew the problem. I thought I knew how to solve the world's problems. Right? I'm born again. I'm like, oh, well, here's the problems with politics. Here's the problems with this. Here's the problems with this. But you know what the problem is? I didn't look at my own part to see what the actual problem was. See, there's a process that we've got to go through. But Peter can't conceive of failing God. He's followed him for three years. Right? Jesus, I've been with you three years. Surely, I've made it. Right? It's almost like as long as a college degree. Like, I've been at Jesus Seminary for three years. I should have my master's in this thing and know about this. Jesus knows something about you that you don't know about yourself. And he's not upset about it. He's not like, like, oh man, you're so terrible. He's like, I love you, but I love you enough to let you know really who you are. And if you don't learn the lesson through the Holy Spirit in you, leading you and guiding you into all truth, and you want to stay in darkness, I'm going to have to let Satan have his time with you so that you can come out on the other side humble and realize what I'm trying to do in your life and who you need to be. Amen? This is what he's doing. But now, but now watch what Jesus does here. Verse 34. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter. Notice, when it comes to the sifting and the trial, he says, Simon, Simon. All right? Now, after Peter's voiced this, this kind of thing of like, I'm going to follow you to the cross. I'm not going to, to deny you. He says, he know, he's still addressing him as Peter. He says, I tell you, Peter. So he's saying to him, in a sense, that this trial is associated with Simon. But there is a character transformation that's going to take place that's going to lead you to Peter. 
See, Jesus is still looking at us, knowing our potential the entire time. And he's addressing us as that person that he has called in that potential. So he's still appealing to Peter as Peter, even though Peter isn't Peter yet. Just go with it, okay? (laughs) Tweet that out. (laughs) So he's still addressing him. He's calling him out. Now look what he tells him. He said, I'll tell you, Peter, verse 34, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. This is unthinkable for Peter. Jesus, I've been with you three years. I left my fishing business. I left my family. I've left everything to follow you. And you're telling me I'm going to end up denying you? Peter is a little bit offended here because he's pointing back-to-back sacrifices into, into things that looked like obedience. But there's always something to learn in steps of obedience. Peter's learning this lesson. Jesus is saying to Peter, Satan's asked to sift you with this trial. And I'm going to let him have Simon, but he can't have Peter. Come on now. I'm going to let you have Simon, Satan. I'm going to let you have the old man. And as you beat up on the old man, it's actually going to humble the man I'm trying to get to And he's going to cry out, and suddenly it's going to transform him into Peter. Amazing. So now we see, after the trial fast-forwarding, we don't find a backslidden Judas that has denied Christ. We find a man that stands up on Pentecost and preaches, and 3,000 get saved. Come on now. They're eating chicken at Pentecost. (laughs) See, this is Satan's sifting is only removing parts of the chaff. The grain is still intact. And this is what Jesus' whole message was to these men. John chapter 12. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it produces fruit. Jesus is trying to get him down to seed level. Remove anything that would hinder the producing of fruit. This is the process that that Peter is walking through. This is the great crisis that has led us all to Christ. Nobody has ever in the history of mankind come to Christ because their life was so good. And they say, man, i got to find a way to thank God because my life's so good. No, it's when a crisis hits. And we're trying to find meaning in the crisis. And that crisis points us to the ultimate crisis. Jesus Christ being placed into the hands of sinful men and murdered. The ultimate crisis that has ever happened on the earth. And that crisis points us to that crisis. And we say, if that crisis worked out in the resurrection of Christ, well then surely my little crisis, God can turn it and make it into something that is good. 
This is the great crisis that leads us into relationship with God. And how can I have resurrection power if I've yet to be acquainted with the cross? Right? We, Peter's just trying to figure out a way around the cross, right? It's kind of like this pulpit at see-through. I'm glad I didn't forget my pants this morning. It would have been nothing to, nothing to get behind. But, oh man, sorry y'all. It just is what it is. Don't blame it on the anointing. How about that? See, this was the great crisis. Jesus is addressing him by name so that he gave him this name to understand that after this trial, I can't let you forget who you really are. Because what the trial attempts to do is to get us to forget who we really are. Because we think that the trial is blowing away our relationship with God. But the trial is actually revealing that our relationship isn't as deep as we thought. And we have to be willing to sit in that vulnerable area where God could be telling us to go away. But instead, he says, come to me all who are weary <laughs> and heavy laden, and I've got rest for you. I want to tell you, your divorce has not sealed the fate on your ministry or your purpose. Your failures have not wrote the death warrant to your dreams. God just had to get you to learn something about yourself so that you would know how sufficient and loving He really was. You ever say, I know I, know I do this sometimes, right? I have, a good, good, I have a weak run where maybe I won't fall into any kind of sin. I'll keep a good attitude. I won't fight with my wife. <laughs> I, I'll think, man, I, you know, that, that's... Sometimes I'm the worst person when I've had a good run, long run of holiness. Because then I got grace for nobody, right? Well, you ought to just get in the Word, brother. <laughs> you ought to just, you know, suck it up, get on your knees until God shows up, you know, and we, we posture ourselves like we're something. But let me mess up and run boldly to the throne room of grace and then let somebody come to me who's struggling and how am I going to treat them? We'll say, oh, brother, come here. Let me tell you about my day, too. Right? We begin to share in something that is bringing us into fellowship with the one who's paid the price. And when our posturing quits being religious and we just start being who we actually are, we encounter God in so many new ways. Because we're not walking in pretense or under a false reality, but we're made in the image of God, and so we're operating in the actual reality in which we were made. See, Peter was a man that Jesus had chosen. Jesus chose Peter, right? Now, Peter responded, obviously, but, but Jesus is saying, follow me, right? And many times Jesus is trying to share with Peter. He's trying to say, hey, I'm going to be handed into the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be crucified. But guess what? On the third day, I'm going to raise from the dead, right? Now, if somebody tells me that, I'm going to be thinking, wait, you're going to raise from the dead? All they can hear is the cross is coming. Right? If you ever receive a truth that is bad 
it tends to overshadow the good news that's on the other side, right? And so they're hearing, yeah, I'm going to be handed in the hands of sinful men. The Son of Man's going to be crucified. But on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, that's the most miraculous part of that statement, right? But they don't catch the miraculous part of the statement. All they can think about is the cross and how to get away and around this cross that's going to be coming that Christ is telling them about. Jesus is trying to share on this with them this reality. And Peter's incipient call, you remember this, is that the, the fish are in the, in, the, in the nets, right? And cast your net on the other side, and he, he pulls it up, and it's such a big uh, caught of fish, they can barely bring the fish ashore. And, and Jesus falls on his face, and he says, Get away from me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now the man that says, Get away from me, I'm a man of unclean lips, is now telling Jesus, how things really ought to go. See, it's easy for pride to slip in when we've been in this thing a little bit and we think we know better. And this is what happens. But we find Christ sharing with Peter in our text. He's got to go through this trial. This is hard for us to understand, right? I remember, you know, being a teenager in FCA, right? And we all had the shirt, the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And, uh, you know, so I'm sitting there, and I go, get ready. Yeah, I can do all things that strengthen me. And I go to shoot a jump shot, and I shoot over the backboard. And I'm like, I thought I could do all things. Maybe we need a little context there, right? Paul is talking about, and I can do all things that Christ strengthens me. He said, I've had a little, and I've had a lot. I've had it good, and I've had it bad. And I've learned everywhere and in all situations I can do anything. The Christ who strengthens me. But we th- have this mentality that if Christ with me, I can accomplish anything I want. And I want to tell you that you can accomplish the things that Christ wants you to accomplish. But many times our failures are put in place where we can be redirected to our purpose. But what happens is, is we interpret rejection in the wrong way. But rejection is nothing more than redirection. It's leading us. So if you've been rejected, it's just this thing that God's doing. He's pointing it somewhere else. So anyone putting their faith in Christ to have to fail, it's just almost, it's almost too hard to handle. But see, there was a level of faith that Peter had in himself and a level of faith that Peter had in Christ. And those two were disproportionate. that Peter needed this failure so that he could have grace with fellow failures. See, the central issue is not that Peter failed. It's that his faith didn't fail. (laughs) Because we see that thing, and yes, Peter denied him three times, but it says he wept bitterly. That it was failure that led him to Christ and was pulling him into his destiny where he might find who he actually is in God, not who the image he was that he thought based on his pride from his own obedience. See, God doesn't care if you succeed because you could succeed all the way to hell. 
God wants your faith to succeed. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That the issue is faith. The issue is trusting God, not our performance or what we think we ought to be. But the issue is, is how are we trusting Christ with every step that we are taking and every breath of air that we are breathing? See, God wants your faith to succeed. So after Jesus, he tells Peter. Peter begins to make a series of vows, doesn't he? I'll never deny you. I'll go with you even to the cross. Peter begins to make these great vows and boasts. But realize, Peter didn't really think the cross was coming. And I get this thought. What if God really took us up on our prayers that we pray? Come on now. Right? We've got the greatest worship songs in the history of worship, but it could be proving to make us the greatest liars that have ever lived in church history. So, right? So Peter doesn't really think this thing's coming. Maybe this is just an allegory or just a, a symbolic thing that Christ is talking about. How many times have we said, Jesus, I'll do anything you want me to do. I give you my life and all that I am. What if he stepped in and told you something really crazy right then? Oh, mm. See... <laughs> Amen. See, because that's the issue, and this is the issue of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler's lesson wasn't because he had stuff God was mad at him. The rich young ruler is coming to him with his own definition of how good he actually is, and Jesus has to undo that so that he can find him. See, Jesus takes him up on that. Oh, I've done all that. I've kept the law. Okay, well, the law ought to lead you to be loving, so sell your possessions and give to the poor. Walked away sorrowful. We condemn him, but what if Jesus told us that to us? Cash in the 401k and give it to the poor. Ooh, Jesus. I'm getting up there, brother, you know. <laughs> right? So when we look at this, it's not a... We, we don't look at this and say, oh, well, that's how they are. We look and we find ourselves. We find that we're like Peter. That we think too highly of ourselves. And that Jesus is trying to undo that. And the very thing we think that's going to reveal us and make us unlikable is the very thing that's going to make us acceptable into the sight of God. We undo what God's trying to do all the time because of our pride and our image that we're projecting out of who we ought to be. What if God took us up on these things? What would we actually do Peter even gets the revelation of who God is and this is this is so cool as Jesus comes to them in Matthew 16 and says who do you think that I who does the world think that I am right some say a prophet John the Baptist Elijah and then what does he do who do you say that I am Peter <laughs> Doesn't put his foot in his mouth this time, right? You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. 
Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now you follow that chapter on down a little bit further. Jesus says, Okay, now that you know who I am, I can tell you my mission. He says, I'm going to be handed over <laughs> into the hands of sinful men, and they're going to crucify me. But three days later, I'm going to raise from the dead. Matthew 16, Peter pulls Jesus aside and has a pep talk with him. Read it. It's, 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 it's crazy. He pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, quit telling people you're having to go to the cross. And the very one who just got the revelation that, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for you, you know, my father has actually spoken to your heart this time when you said something. Jesus is now saying, get behind me. So that we could have a revelation, a true revelation of who God is, but not be in tune with his mission. And the only time Jesus is rebuking Satan is in, when it manifests in the presence of one of the people that he's chosen. Which leads me to believe that Satan is more apparent in church circles than he ever is out there in a bar. Because they're not playing the game. <laughs> See, the church wants to be the commentary to tell the world how they ought to be. I got, I got news for you. You ready? Sinners sin. Paul says that we ought to be judging each other in here, not having a commentary for how they ought to act. See, there's this coming from Simon, this transformation to becoming Peter that's painful. So I don't want to hear that. It makes me feel better when I can blame them out there for the problems. Blame game feels good. But it never leads us into truth and to reality and to relationship with God. Never does. Never will. Peter's adamant. He's a devoted follower of Jesus. See, he wasn't really lying about that he'd be willing to die, right? Because when the mob shows up, he's got a sword. He's whacking ears off. Right? It's like the fisherman guy is like, I'm going to show you how bold I am, Christ. <laughs> but what he's really doing is he's stopping the cross. Once he realizes he can't stop the cross, what's he doing? Oh, he's denying Jesus three times over here to a little girl. See, Peter isn't saying, I'm willing to die for you, Christ. He's saying, I'm willing to go down in a blaze of glory on my own terms. But I won't be a fool for you, Jesus. Because I've got my own agenda that must go forward. This is the great thing. God is bringing us into this reality where we find out who we actually are. Peter's probably thinking Deuteronomy 21.3, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Why in the world would you want to be a curse, Jesus? See, because he couldn't see the necessary sacrifice that had to take place because he's too focused on his own image and his own goodness. God is trying to reveal something to Peter. So Pierce Peter and Christ is arrested. And it says that he follows from a distance. 
So the one that was stepping foot for foot in his footsteps is now at a safe distance, wondering what's going to happen. And the Bible says he's warming himself around the fire, and, and a girl comes up to him says, hey, aren't you that Jesus guy? And he says, yeah, you better believe it. I'm a Jesus guy. I'm bold for Jesus. No. He says, I don't even know who you're talking about. And he begins to cursing, and this wasn't him using four-letter words. This was him cursing Christ to show that he agreed with what was going on in the room. And then the rooster crows. And then the memory sneaks back in. Oh, what he told me was true. But I was so blinded and thought I was somebody I wasn't that I missed it. In Luke, the Bible says that as they as their eyes meet, the Gospel of Luke gives us that account that when he denies him on the third time, Jesus looks at Peter and he makes eye contact. And I just got to wonder what that look looked like. (laughs) How did Jesus look at him? How did he look at him? I think Peter could have taken it if Jesus would have looked at him with, I told you so. Wouldn't listen to me. But no, Jesus looked at him with the same love that he looked at him when he called him in the first place. He calls them in the same way. That Jesus' look never changed even though he failed. That Jesus' look stayed the same. That he wasn't shaken by Peter's mistakes. The disappointment didn't enter his heart because he knew what was in there and he knew what was going to happen after he experienced this failure. He's looking at him with love. Jesus' gaze never changed. Just, I love you, Peter. I know you don't understand what's happening right now, but this is all for you, buddy. Just got to trust this process. I'm going to be resurrected. I'll be back soon, but, but I need you to hang in there. God's in this place. <laughs> he shows up when he's, there's people to love on. I remember when I had first gotten saved and really sold out for the Lord. and <clears throat> I was on my way to work, and my mom, who's here today, she called me and said, Hey, I'm at Sonic, and I'm going to get something to drink. What are you going to drink? Yeah, get me a root beer or whatever. And uh, so she's on her way back and said, This will work. You'll be here on time when it's time for me to leave for work. Now, Sonic has these drinks that are like two gallons of soda in a styrofoam cup. You've seen them. And at this point in time, they've now made smaller bottoms where they actually fit in a cup holder. At this point in time, they hadn't developed that technology, I guess. And it was just this giant cup. So it wouldn't fit in my cup holder. So I go there to... Or I meet my mother, and then I go, and I go to leave, and I'm riding down the road, 
So I have to put it between my legs. And so as I'm driving, the steering wheel on a sharp turn hits the bottom of the Sonic cup. And now root beer is everywhere. And I've got to go back home late for work. So I get the cell phone out and go, Mom, I'm headed back. I spilled root beer all over me. And I'm, I'm furious. How could this happen to me? How could I have root beer on my lap, right? And as soon as I get there, I get out of the car, I throw open the door, I throw that giant cup out, and I'm just furious. And I had this thought. I cannot serve God because I'm just too unperfect. And I look back, and my mother is there with a towel in her hands and tears in her eyes, and she just starts cleaning up the mess. I could have took it if she would have said, Oh, grow up! It's just a cup. But I couldn't take it to watch her sit there and clean up my mess. And Jesus shows up with a towel ready to wash feet. I mean, I'm just telling you. Matter of fact, Jesus tells the disciples when he's washing their feet, he says, if you don't let me do this, you can't have any part of what I'm doing. In other words, if there's a part of your life that you're too ashamed of to let me touch, then we can't even have fellowship together. Because, see, that's true intimacy. Well, true intimacy is not two perfect people coming together. It's two perfect people that see, or two imperfect people that see every fault that each other have, but they love each other anyway. Intimacy is being known how you are known and being loved anyway. This is the love of Christ. When Christ comes back from the dead, what does he tell those ladies? Go tell the disciples and tell Peter. He's still got to know his name. I need him to remember his name. I need him to remember who he was. And if you notice, Peter doesn't get it right off the bat, right? The disciples are in a room, closed off, the door's locked. Probably thinking they're going to be crucified. But what does Jesus do? Just walks through the wall. Bloop. I'm not even knocking on the door because you are my property, guys, and so we're going to get this thing straight, right? And so he just pops through the door. Bloop. See, Jesus will walk through the walls that we've put up and tried to keep him out. He will walk through walls to get to you. He won't even mess with the door. Revelation 3, when he's standing outside of the door and knocking, he's talking to the church there. He's not talking to those who are on the outside looking in. If you're on the outside looking in, he'll walk through a wall to get to you, man. Still, Peter's not getting it right. John 21, he's fishing. Jesus is still showing up. Jesus is on the shore. Hey, cast your nets on the other side, right? You'd think that would get a mental picture of like, who else has told us that in the past? But it says they still don't recognize who's calling out to him. They say, well, let's listen to the advice of this stranger. <laughs> And they do it, and then here's a bunch of fish again, and Jesus realize, or Peter realizes, oh, this is Jesus. The Bible says he puts on his coat and then jumps in the water. How regal. How austere. See, he's still trying to cover up something. <laughs> he's putting his stuff back on so he can dive in. 
trying to show Jesus, look at my effort, Jesus, isn't this cool? Now imagine a 50-year-old man standing on the shore of a bank, soaking wet and out of breath. You think Jesus was impressed by that? <laughs> he was saying, you still don't get it. And in that text, Jesus is cooking fish. In other words, he already had fish. He didn't need theirs. She said, I can speak and make fish. I don't need what you can do for me. I just need you. Jesus doesn't need what you can do for him. He just wants you. He said, but Jesus, I bring a lot to the table. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. But Jesus ain't leaving. He keeps telling him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. They even walk away from that moment, and Jesus says, some of you are going to be carried to places that you don't want to be carried and be stretched out. In other words, some of you are going to be crucified. And you know what Peter says? What about John? Peter says, what's it to you if he stays alive when I come back? See, he didn't even have it worked out after these encounters. Jesus is showing, showing us something with the theme of Peter is that he's going to keep popping into your life. He's going to keep dealing with you. He's going to keep loving on you. He's going to keep addressing you until he has your heart. He'll follow people. I've seen people give their life to Christ on their deathbed. He'll follow you to your deathbed. David gets this reality. If I make my bed in Sheol, if I make my bed in heaven, if I, where can I go to flee your presence? See, there comes a time to where we quit fleeing his presence and we start saying, okay, God, you win. And we surrender our lives to him. Amen. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. For everybody here, God, we thank you for what you're doing.